Welcome to Fostering Solutions, a podcast that uplifts people and enterprises making positive impact in communities around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Foster. My guest today on Fostering Solutions is Timothy Gibson. Timothy is, or Tim for short, is a wealth manager, and he's going to talk about foundational truths about wealth management, just really trying to demystify wealth and managing wealth and investing and that kind of thing. So welcome, Tim. Hello. So tell the audience about yourself. Who is Tim Gibson? So I am a, first off, a father of two wonderful little girls. Um, Anyone who knows me knows pretty much my entire social media presence is committed to them. (laughs) Husband of a wonderful wife, Kate. Um, She is a attorney, a great mom and a great wife. Um, That's my full-time job. And in my spare time, (laughs) (laughs) um, I work at Merrill Lynch uh, in wealth management, um, really just trying to help people understand their financial lives. Okay, good, good. So how did you end up in wealth management? How did you choose that career? So it was completely by accident. Um, After, so let me think. In undergrad, I interned for the city of Durham. I went to college in North, at North Carolina Central in Durham, North Carolina. And I had a passion. I was planning on going to grad school, and I wanted to work in uh, economic development. So I got an internship in the mayor's office, and I worked in the mayor's summer youth program, but the uh, internship ran out of the office of economic development. I, was, I had no clue, you know, really what they did, you know, what was going on. So... <clears throat> I kind of had a hands-on experience of working with the office and really seeing how they were taking the dilapidated, you know, at that point, that was really before the downtown revitalization nationwide really kind of picked up. Um, you know, lately in the last decade, you know, go around the country, a lot of downtowns are starting to be revitalized. But, you know, showing my age, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, it hadn't really kicked off yet. So I was able to see kind of on, from the ground level an area in Durham that was completely boarded up. You know, there was abandoned homes and they were really working to make it this prosperous area. You know, it's almost like magic to me. Um, I fell in love. Um, So that was kind of like my initial draw was in economic development. So fast forward, I'm in grad school, getting my master's degree. And I met a gentleman. Uh, He's actually the son of the first black governor of Virginia. Um, Doug Wilder's son, Doug okay. Wilder Jr. Um, I was introduced to him and he became kind of a mentor to me. He said, hey, Tim, if you really want to get economic development, you need to understand money. So I said, what does that mean? I understand money. He said, no, you need, uh, you need <laughs> to know money. So he said, quit your job and go get a job at a bank. I was like, really? He's like, what kind of job? He's like, it doesn't matter. Just go get a job at a bank, be a banker, just get your foot in the door. You need to understand how money works. So I took a shot and I tried it. Um, I went to Wells Fargo and I was a personal banker. Um, to be honest, it was the boringest job I've ever had in my life. <laughs> um, I was way overqualified. At that point, I had a master's degree. I had a decade of experience in management and retail. And I remember the branch manager came up to me you know, early on and said, look, he said, Tim, I can tell this isn't a job for you. Have you ever considered being a licensed bank? And to me, I'm just like, that sounds like more work for a job I'm already bored at. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Then he said the magic words, we'll send you home for, I think it was like three to five months to study to get licensed to be a licensed banker. And I was like, I get to go home? So, yep, you don't come into the bank at all. Sign me up. <laughs> um, and that was probably the best decision I ever made because what happened when I went home and started studying, my eyes were like awakened. Um, all of a sudden, things I've never thought about, you know, just started making sense to me. You know, I was mm-hmm. introduced to a world that I've never heard of before. Um, and then I just literally just fell in love. Good, good, good. So now you're a wealth advisor. So what it, what describe that career? So you went from per, from, you know, banking to wealth management, which is two different areas. How did you end up in wealth management and what is wealth management? So well the conversion really came like I said when I became a licensed banker at that point I was a registered financial advisor who worked in a retail bank. Um, shortly thereafter, my beautiful bride, uh, we were living in Richmond, Virginia at that point. She was in law school. Um, she graduated from law school and we were moving to Charleston, West Virginia, where she got a job offer. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for a new position. So I started interviewing at that point. I was a licensed financial advisor uh, and not okay. just a banker anymore. And I kind of just started interviewing with firms and I got to Merrill Lynch simply because at that point, the market executive said, Hey, Tim, I'm passionate about what you do. And I wanted to help you become, you know, the best you could possibly be. And, you know, really that was kind of like my start. So what do I do as a financial advisor or wealth management advisor, depending on which title you want to use? Um, the easiest way to explain, I help people manage their financial lives. Um, I often say, you know, I call myself a financial doctor. Um, anything with a dollar sign attached to it, I advise and consult and, you know, assist my clients in making decisions and, navigating their financial lives. Okay. So what is it, do you have like an overall approach? How do you approach your, your practice, your wealth advice, wealth management practice? Is there a certain approach you use? Um, yeah. So really for me, it's a holistic kind of personal one-to-one relationship. Um, every client I work with typically starts the same way with doing a wealth outlook and you really kind of get a, a big picture of your financial situation. Now, why is that important? You know, a lot of times people say, well, Hey Tim, I just, you know, I have some money I want to move over. Can I invest it? You know, obviously I'm not a stockbroker. That's not what I do. My job isn't just to trade stocks for you. My job is to help to advise you on your overall financial health. So it's really looking at the big picture of a person's situation, you know, if I'm just investing your money, but then you have a ton of debt and liabilities on the other side, it does no good to, you know, I can be the best stockbroker on the planet and get you a 30% year return, but if you're paying 45% in credit card debt, it doesn't really do anything. So for me, it's looking at the big picture of the person's situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you, um, so it's not, you don't have like a niche area per, per se, it's just really a holistic approach um yes and no like so i do have a few like niche markets um so for example you know kind of my practice kind of broke up into really two to three groups um the first group which is you know kind of like what i like you know what i love it's kind of like i call the mom and pop of the world um they're individuals you know families who've worked you know either blue collar job 
you know, professional, you know, I've worked 30, 40 years, I'm getting ready to retire, I'm approaching retirement age, and I'm, I need some assistance on preparing for retirement. That's the one group. I call them the mom and pops of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the next group um, is kind of my institutional business. Um, so I work with um, nonprofit organizations. Um, it really started off working with historically black colleges and universities, I'm managing their endowments, um, and kind of spread into awesome to nonprofits. Um, kind of the reason why I like that area a lot is really on the donor development side. Um, you know, a lot of time when nonprofits are looking for investment managers, you know, great, they just help you manage your money, but they don't really help you raise money. And I think that's what separates me from just the average advisor because, you know, for me, I'm working with a development officer on, you know, plan giving and, you know, showing strategies on how you can increase your endowment, not just managing your endowment. And then the last group, um, I have a couple of niches that I work with as far as professional groups. Um, auto dealers is one that I've been working with for a lot of, you know, for quite a few years, probably six years now. And then uh, dentists and doctors. Um, I'm a member of several organizations, you know, National Bar, um, National Medical Association, um, and some others, and really just work with dentists and doctors on helping them kind of establish what they need. So those are kind of my three niches that I kind of work with. Okay, so why did you pick those? Do you do you remember how, you, or did you just kind of fall into those based on the clients who were approaching you? How did you end up selecting those areas? Um, it was just natural selection, almost. Um, you know, when I first started, I was like, "Oh, I'm going after lawyers and see, like, you know, all these pipe dreams of clients I wanted to go after." Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's just naturally, you know, I kind of um, met a doctor um, actually in Beckley, West Virginia, who introduced me to, you know, a lot of his friends. And typically what happens, you know, if you do a good job for one person, they refer you to another person. And they're really kind of just picked up steam that way. Um, Also, you know, early on I learned, if you're going to work with a group, it's helpful to understand their needs. Um, So for example, auto dealers, you know, I really kind of focus on understanding the needs of an auto dealer owner. And so when I'm talking to one, I can speak their language, just like with doctors. You know, I understand the risk that they go into. I can understand, you know, the type of insurance they need to protect their practice and their families. Mm-hmm. I understand how their income, you know, between a W-2 and a 1099 doctor, you know, it's kind of helpful to understand their language. So it's easy to kind of work your way and entrench your way into those relationships. Okay, okay. And I, I think I, I met you when we, we were working with... Um with the Kisra 401k, mm-hmm. right? That's Perfect. when, and I think what we liked is that you were able to break things down where the regular regular person without that, you know, um, extensive financial background can really understand. So that's one thing that we, I, I remember us um, really appreciating. Um, Called the KISS approach. <laughs> I know, just keep it simple, stupid, yeah. That's my approach. It works okay. with me. Because some people, when you know, they when they speak to you about financial matters and investing, you're left with like, you know, being so overwhelmed and and you know, and just not knowing really how to move forward. But I think your approach, really breaking it down and making it plain, really, really um, is effective. I believe. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. And for me, I think for so many years, you know, the industry was. I don't want to say elitist, but it was elitist, where, you know, to have an advisor, especially, you know, like a Merrill Lynch advisor in prestige, it was set for, you know, the ultra, ultra affluent. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, advisors often felt like they had to be so, you know, entrenched and specialized that 
they almost lost the common touch. You know, for me, I'm the opposite, you know, because uh, people often say, well, Tim, what's the minimum it takes to be a client of yours, you know, to talk to you? And I often say, you know, a penny. Um, because for me, my approach is anyone and everyone deserves, you know, quality financial advice, um, especially within the minority communities. You know, I've, I've always said, you know, do I only work for minorities? No, of course not. I work with anyone who wants to work, work with me. But, you know, who's, you know, are there going to be times where a church might call and say, hey, can you come and talk to our congregation about, you know, managing their finances? Yes, of course I'm going to go. I don't care if I, if I don't get a single client out of it. To me, it's about, you know, I'm a big passion about closing the wealth gap. And for me, I think education is one of the biggest tools that we can use, you know, toward, well, one of the many tools we can use towards closing the wealth gap. So I've always said, you know, I'm going to be in my community, so I'm going to reach out to people who typically wouldn't get this advice. I want to be that bridge to provide that advice. Absolutely. And, that, and that's, you know, that's so important for us all to play a role in giving back, reaching back to help someone who, who is trying to, you know, move, move ahead and give them a hand up. Absolutely. So, um, so your, your belief is that investment is for really, um, it, it is for everyone. So how would a person's strategy be different at different phases of their lives or different phases of their careers? Like, you know, talk, thinking about someone who maybe just starting out, just finished college and getting, you know, just started their first job. And then you mentioned, you know, one of your niche areas is really working with folks who are looking towards retirement. So like when you look at the whole spectrum, how would a person's strategy change depending on where they are on that spectrum? So the official terms, you know, you're kind of using those, we're looking at, I guess, age brackets. You know, you have accumulation stages where you're accumulating wealth, you know, you're gathering. Um, you're, you know, you kind of go back to the old squirrel story, you know, the squirrels out all, you know, spring and summer, I guess in fall, collecting squirrels, preparing for the winter. That's people typically, if you say from ages, you know, 21 through age 60, you're accumulating. Um, and then once you kind of get to that 60, you know, and let's say the average person retires around 65, 66 now, you know, at that point it's more preservation and stabilizing. And then once you kind of get that 65, 66, you're decumulating, you're going down, you're spending. So really depends on where that person is in life. Now, also it changes because let's just say hypothetically, you know, you are a 50 year old, but you've just started, you know, saving this year, you know, the amount of risk and things you might need to do is going to be different than the 50 year old who's been saving since they were 18. So it's always a personalized decision based upon that person's goals and objectives. Um, so, you know, and that's one thing I pride myself also when I meet with a person, I don't have, I don't take a folder. I don't have a bag of, you know, pre design. Hey, this is what, this is what you need prescription, you know, it's really list, listen to you where you are and let's design something that helps you kind of where you are. You do have that trusty tablet though, where you plug those numbers in and <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> come I up with a plan. Right here. um so you're saying you know investment is for everyone Uh, the 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 approach will be a little different depending on the stage um they're in um 
is there, do you ever say um, a person should have a certain amount of money saved in like a, an emergency fund or something before they start thinking of investing? Yes. <laughs> so the age old statement is kind of like the reverse pyramid um, where, you know, you should have at least, and especially, you know, the COVID-19 world has completely, oh, uh, yeah. you know, challenged these statements. But again, it, it holds true. You know, you should have at least 90 days, three months of living expenses. So, you know, so how, what is that? You know, what does it cost you to live each month? If it costs you 5000 to live each month, you should have at least 15000 Now, of course, the question comes back to beg, you know, should you have it under the mattress? Should you have it in, you know, available credit? Where should you have it? You know, to me, to some extent, cash, you can never go wrong with cash. Mm -hmm. um, so that's stage one. You know, stage two typically is the next three to six months of, you know, living expense. And I always use living expense because for me to say, oh, you should have $3,000, but it costs you 10 grand off to live, that 3,000 will do nothing for you. Um, so, so living expenses would include rent or mortgage? Rent, food, mortgage, utilities. utilities, all your bills, you know, everything except disposable. Like, you know, if you spend, you know, going shopping, you know, you don't include that, but all the- I wouldn't include my nail, you know, the nail salon bill or anything. Well, it depends. It depends. <laughs> like you said, to some extent, if you're a professional and, you know, and you have to, you know, you're looking for a new job, nail and hair might be a necessity for you to find that next job. So to some extent, I wouldn't necessarily say not including nail and hair. You know, looking how my COVID beard and hair COVID has taught us a lot, though, about what we really need. <laughs> exactly. But I necessarily wouldn't want to go looking for a job with this COVID right. haircut. Right. Um, so I'm not going to say that hair and nail is important, but, you know, all those things that you consider necessities. Mm -hmm. um, you want to make sure you have those saved up. So that's the first thing. Now, this is where, like I said, that concept is being challenged to some extent. Um, I think lately, you know, especially in this COVID world, you know, with the market all about what's been going on, you have a lot of people, you know, my phone has never rang as much as it has in the last probably two months with friends and family members and people who will randomly just, you know, find you online, say, hey, I want to start investing. You know, I have $100, I have $200. You know, I heard you can make money in the market. You know, where do I go? <laughs> you know, where typically, you know, you kind of say, well, hold on, before you do that, but I'm starting to kind of change my opinion on that a little bit. Um, where I necessarily wouldn't say, let's say, let's invest a lot of money, but also investing is also an educational standpoint. You know, if you're just taking, you know, 30, 40, $50 and you're putting into the market, why not? You know, I don't think you should have to wait until you have three months of living expense to at least kind of start getting a baseline educational standpoint. You know, mm -hmm. if you're taking that $100 you would have spent on vacation and you're deciding, well, hey, since I can't travel on vacation, I want to buy some shares of a company, should you, should you not be able to? No, of course not. So I am softening my position to some extent on, on that statement. Okay, so to kind of continue with that. So what else has... Um how has COVID impacted your advice? It seems like you're, you're already starting to change your, um, your viewpoint on a number of things. How else has COVID impacted your work? Um, so for me, COVID actually has made me very busy. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll tell you the reason why on multiple levels, you know, one, pretty much for the last decade um, since 
really longer than a decade, really since the Obama administration started, the market for the most part has been going up. You know, we have having a bull market. So mm-hmm. a bull market is based upon, you know, the percent of growth, you know, quarter over quarter. We've been in a bull market for, you know, almost 12 years. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, a lot of the do-it-yourselfers, you know, hey, you know, I'm an investing, you know, I invested by myself. You could do anything and you're going to, you would make, made money over the last 12 years. Right. Um, so this, you know, this COVID, you know, disruption in the market and the economy really caught a lot of people off guard because you had people who, you know, they were just in these all equity positions or just some things they shouldn't be. And they started getting some real, you know, shakeups where, you know, I had X in my portfolio when I woke up, you know, the next day I had X minus 25%, you know, people didn't know how to handle that. Mm-hmm. So really kind of having that professional advice, you know, all of a sudden people say, well, hey, Tim, we need to talk. You know, I've got some questions for you. I started getting a lot of those. So I was very busy, you know, in this world. And also, I deal with a lot of business owners. So when it came to, you know, payroll protection program and salary and just being that advice to that business owner, because, again, my job is to be an advisor. So, you know, the business owner would call me and say, hey, you know, look, I got to shut down, you know, do I keep my employees on payroll or running scenarios and running, you know, hypotheticals and saying, Hey, you know, if you keep these people on payroll, this is what's going to cost you. You know, how much cash do you have on hand? And this is before the payroll protection program was even announced. You know, I had a lot of these conversations with business owners on advising them what they should do in order to keep their business functional during the disruption. So it's been very busy for me. So have you had to be become a, um, an expert on the, on the payroll protection and, Yo, of those programs out there, the CARES I, Act. And- I will not say an expert just because, you know, I'm by no means an expert, but yes. Um, I had answered a lot of questions and things happened so quickly when it came to those laws and programs where, you know, when they went live, no one even saw the bill. You know, it was, you know, you had people announcing like, hey, on Friday, the payroll protection program is launching but no one's even read the bill. So like literally I remember that the night the bill was finally signed, you know, I was up late that night reading over it, trying to digest this 300 page document. So I could explain to people, you know, what it really meant, you know, what was allowed, what wasn't allowed. So yes. Um, you know, I had definitely become very knowledgeable on, you know, the CARES Act and kind of some of the subsequent legislation that came down to assist business owners and individuals. Right. So, um, so when you think about those people who have been impacted by the pandemic, uh, in, how are you guiding them as they try to recover financially? It's like, what, what are some, some um, advice you've been giving to like business owners and as well as individuals in terms of their, their recovery, their, their financial recovery? So, and again, it's always going to vary from person to person, but if you want to generalize just kind of just a statement, you know, first from a business owner's perspective, you know, really the first thing is, you know, preserve the business. You know, we want to do the best we can and make sure we're taking advantage of all the programs that are out there, you know, both private and public, you know, so what is the government office offering? What are the nonprofits? What are the grant opportunities? You know, what can we do to keep your cash flow afloat? to keep your business functional, um, you know, because a business owner, you know, you have a lot of people's lives and families and livelihoods in your hands. So it's not a simple decision of just saying like, hey, you know, I'm gonna shut down for three months, we'll just take it out. But no, 
because that impacts, you know, 20 or 30 people's lives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're a tough conversation that business owners have to go through to decide, okay, what's best for my employees on top of what's best for my family. Uh, from an individual standpoint, you know, it's really just two groups of people. You know, you have the group that's, like you said, kind of that preservation of capital, you know, in retirement. And you have those people who, you know, I'm not quite there yet. I have five, 10 years. You know, that five, 10 years out from retirement, there's a completely different conversation than the person who's, you know, closer or into retirement. Um, you know, typically if you're far out, um, it's a great time to buy. You know, everything's on sale. Um, this too shall pass, you know, kind of use the, my standard statement was, you know, what are two things are going to happen? Either things are going to normalize or it's the end of mankind as we know it. And it's, if it's the end of mankind as we know it, we've got bigger things to worry about than money. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, I say jokingly, but to some extent it's true. So let's not, you know, let's not get too hung up on this. You know, if you look at the market historically, you know, we've been through pandemics before. Um, this isn't the first pandemic mankind has known. You know, Wall Street has been around for a very long time. You know, Wall Street has seen pandemics, it's seen world wars, it's seen, you know, the Great Depression. And guess what? The market has survived. So to some extent, you know, the American economy is very resilient. It, it can get bruised and it can get hit. But the American economy is a strong machine that has survived the test of time. So I'm not giving up faith on the economy overall. Now, for those who are in retirement or a different phase, you know, first off, if we were doing our job properly, you know, we were well diversified. You know, we weren't necessarily in all stock or all equities or, you know, we had your portfolio built in a way where it was designed to withstand these waves. Now, no one was expecting a wave, you know, this wasn't a wave, this was a tsunami. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that's why you prepare for these things. You know, you have downside protection, you, you keep cash, you keep fixed income. So it's really just making sure we're doing everything we can and also trimming the fat a little bit. You know, we're sitting down looking, okay, hey, you know, you have opportunities to defer this mortgage. You have opportunities to do this, you know, whatever it might be. What can we do to trim the fat to preserve our capital to make it through this period? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think of assets and investing, home ownership historically has been a way to build generational wealth. Um, and, and I think some of the challenges that people of color are, are experiencing um, in these days is that historically, those opportunities um, were not available um, in, you know, in past generations. When you think of home ownership, is it still a way to build generational wealth? Do you still encourage people to buy a home as opposed to renting? So, that's a loaded question. Let me unpack it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit of a rebel to some extent. So okay. initially, you know, the straight up answer is no. Yes and no. And I'll tell you the reason why. It depends on what you're doing. So if I am a 24, 25 year old looking to buy my first home, if I, you know, if I look at my community and rent, let's say costs $1,500 a month. If I'm going out and buying a home that's gonna cost me 2,000 a month, that might not be the best decision. Um, because along with home ownership comes responsibility. You know, you have maintenance, you have other things, and 
you know, it's time to sell that home. You have a realtor expense. You know, we don't, as a society, we're not as stationary as we were years before. So typically, if you're very young, the possibility and the probability of you living in the same area for the next 10, 15 years is highly unlikely. Now, if you are a person, you're saying, hey, I'm a 21-year-old, and I'm going to go buy this duplex, or I'm going to buy this, you know, property that's, you know, my total outflow for the month is going to be $1,000. That's a different story because you're, you know, you're building, you are building some equity mm-hmm. and your cash flow is lower than what it would cost you to rent. So that's why I said it's yes and no. You know, typically, you know, if you kind of go back to the housing crisis, people were just buying homes that were just outside of their, their cash flow needs, you know, and that's where the banking issue was coming in. You know, you would come in, you're making $50,000 a year working at, in retail, and you were getting approved for a quarter of a million dollar mortgage, you know, and I was putting you on a 15 year arm with a balloon payment. So yeah, you could make the payments for the first 15 years, but year 16, you couldn't pay it anymore. Right. So it depends, you know, I am a huge advocate for cash flow. So, you know, oftentimes when I talk to <clears throat> some of my peers, you know, and they're saying, well, hey, we're looking to buy our first home, especially if you don't have kids, you know, my thought is instead of just buying this home, this great 4,000-foot home for you living by yourself, why not go buy a duplex? You know, if you live in some place where you can put a, you know, you could buy a home, you could have a rental, you know, rental property in your basement or over your garage, look for those type of properties because guess what? You can live there. You have someone else helping you pay your rent. And if you do need to move, you know, if you're in a market that has a good rental opportunity, you can then rent that property out. And guess what? You have cash flow coming in for years to come. So that's what I said. It's a loaded question. Okay. Um, so what's what's the best the best wealth building advice you would have for for, for listeners um, thinking about um, documents products they should have in place as they move on in life? Or what's what's some what's some basics that everyone should be considering? You know, once you're in your thirties and up. So when it comes to building wealth, so the first thing is having a plan. Um, you know, typically if I'm giving a presentation in person, I also have this cheesy, you know, kind of skit I do where I talk about how I buried a hundred dollars out in the outside somewhere and, you know, everyone should go outside and find it. So the question is, well, where is it? That's a great question. And then, you know, all of a sudden you put up a map and say, well, hey, these are the instructions of how to find that hundred dollars. You know, I often say that map is your financial plan. Um, so identify your goals. You know, what's your budget? How much, what's your cash flow? You know, really, what's your, what, what's your projection? You know, you want to retire in how many years? Where do you want to retire at? Having a plan is helpful because when you're making decisions, it's easier to decide what's important. Um, also, as far as tools and, and products, you know, I try not to get everything to particular, you know, specific and products for compliance reasons. But life insurance, you know, I think is a great tool when used properly. You know, it sounds grim, but, you know, if you're in your 30s and, you know, you're starting your first job, you know, the first question I would ask a person is, you know, are your parents still living? And if your parents are living, you know, what type of life insurance do your parents have? You know, are you going to be responsible for caring for your parents and and as they get older? Um, You know, our generation, you know, when I say that our, that generation between, I would say, individuals, between 30s and 50s, you know, it's called the sandwich generation. You know, we're probably the first generation that will have to possibly care for 
parents and children at the same time. Mm -hmm. There's a high probability that I'll be caring for my children while I could possibly be caring for my parents. Financially, that's not built into many plans. So you have to prepare for those things. So when you get that first job, I would say, take out life insurance parent policy on your parents. You know, it sounds grim and scary, but you know, when your parents eventually pass, that's an influx of cash that you can bring in to A, recoup some of the money you've spent caring for your parents, but also, like you said, if you want us really to talk about creating generational wealth, that's a large sum of money that you could bring in for a very low cost. Right. right. Um, so I would say those are two things I would consider. So what about as you kind of start getting up there in 40s and 50s, what about like in-home care and things like that? So that's really what comes to risk management. Um, so for example, like long-term care insurance, um, you know, there's one or two things that are going to happen. You're either going to get old and you're going to need someone to help you or you're going to die. No one plans to die, so let's plan to live. So if you plan to live, you know, what does that mean? Um, some of the, one of the biggest, you know, draws on individual wealth typically is when you get older is that long-term care, you know, the nursing home, you know, it's always the family meeting. we got to put mom in a nursing home, you know, we all need to chip in, you know, $500 a month, whatever it is, because you don't want to put mom in that state run, you know, place with bed bugs, you know, so everyone's trying to chip in to, to cover that cost to put mom to a nice place. So we're not planned for it. Long-term care insurance is that tool you can use to basically help to cover what's considered non-skilled care. So what does that mean? Of course, you have Medicare and health insurance if you're going to the hospital. You know, that's, you know if you have to have surgery, your medical insurance covers that. Mm -hmm. But what people, most people don't realize, once you get out of the hospital and the nurse, the skilled care is no longer needed, insurance doesn't cover that. That's an out-of-pocket expense for most people, unless you're destitute and that you can get on public assistance, but you don't want to do that. So long-term care insurance and insurance you can buy when you're younger and healthy, which basically says, hey, if someone needs to come into your home, if you need to go into a nursing care, if you need to go to adult daycare, you know, any type of non-skilled system, you can basically use this insurance to help offset those costs. So definitely, definitely, you know, if I'm meeting with a person and they're kind of in their, you know, typically 40s is when we kind of start having that conversation, mm -hmm. long-term care is going to be on the top of the list. Okay. Any other... Because I like maybe I've heard of like medical power of attorney. Like when do you get into those kinds of? <clears throat> that actually is at every stage in life. Um, I've actually had a conversation with, um, I'm doing a seminar pretty soon um, for parents who are, you know, planning to send their kids to college. Um, so I would say a medical power of attorney is important literally for parents who have kids who are over 18. Because once you're over 18, you're an adult. So let's just say hypothetically you send your child off to college and God forbid something happens, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to be a person to make these decisions. So having that medical power of attorney where you don't have to worry about going through a court or, you know, having all these questions or issues or possibilities of who can make the decision, having those in place. Um, and then as we get older, you know, I would say the moment you have kids or you're, you know, you're 25, 30 and someone's responsible for you, you want to make sure you have things put in place to say, okay, if something happens to me, this is the person I want making the decisions. So what is a medical power of attorney for those who don't know? It's really, it's the, it gives the person, if you're incapacitated for some reason, it gives that person the ability to make decisions for you. So if something happens to Tim Gibson right now, who has the ability to make decisions? My wife is a very emotional person. If something happens to me, 
maybe I think she would be. She would be an emotional wreck. <laughs> um, so she might not be the best person to make decisions on my health and well-being because she'll be too emotional. So you know, I don't want to necessarily have to be on a ventilator. You know, just to say I'm alive for three years. I, I might want to choose someone who can be a little less emotional, you know, like my brother-in-law. He's a very, you know, scientific, you know, <laughs> back-to-a-person person, you know. He's going to look at the facts presented. He'll make the decision, you know, based upon facts, you know. So, again, that's the reason why you want to have that medical power of attorney because you want to make sure if something happens, you have somebody who can make those decisions. Now, also, if you have children like myself, you want to have, you know, something in place, something happens to you, who cares for your children? You know, you want to have things written. You want to have that will and trust and things like that set up where if something happens to you, you know, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. You know, me and my wife, we have a lot of insurance and assets and things that we've accumulated over our life. You know, I can't just leave, you know, X number of millions of dollars to my six-year-old. So I have a trust that's created that basically says, okay, hey, if something happens to me and my wife, all the assets go to the trust that will then care for my children until they're of age to basically care for themselves. So, you know, I would say a power of attorney and a will and a trust are something that everyone should have, regardless if you are 18 or if you're 68, you need to have it in place. Okay. And that's kind of what you learn by working with a, with a wealth advisor, a financial manager, just thinking of all those aspects of your life really help making sure that you have that plan in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, you know, we're living in the, in the days of COVID and I think, you know, medical power of attorney is definitely something that you need um, at, during these days, especially. Um, so we've got the pandemic of, of COVID and we're, we're also dealing with um, some um, race relations and, and the pandemic there that's really coming to light. As you um, think of systemic barriers, systemic racism that um, people of color um, experience, um, I think more and more people are becoming aware of the, the racial wealth gap. What are your thoughts on the gap? You mentioned it earlier on in your conversation, but what are your thoughts on the gap? Um, do you see it closing? How can we work towards closing it in your lifetime, my lifetime? I mean, what can um, we do? I am very passionate about that. Um, that's actually, you know, if I would say what my crusade is, you know, closing the wealth gap or bringing a sense of closing it is kind of one of my goals in life that I try to accomplish. Um, you know, do I see it being closed in my lifetime? No. Um, I think it's something where it's going to take several generations to kind of really close the gap. But I do think we can make progress on first identifying the causes of it. Um, you know, you often hear with an African American community, you know, people often love to tell the one point, I think it's $1.4 trillion in buying power the African American community has, you know, to me, that's nothing to celebrate. That's something to be ashamed of to some extent, because we're saying we have $1.4 trillion in buying power, but we also have the lowest amount of net worth yeah. of all races. So basically we're saying that, Hey, we spend the most money, but we have nothing to show for it. Right. So how do we fix that? You know, A, like I said, education is one. Now, is that the only item? No, because there's also policies, there's policies and things that are in place that have caused these things to happen. You know, you mentioned earlier about 
you know, the barrier for home interest, you know, home buyer, buying. You know, I think for a lot of people, uh, um, the term redlining, if you have a chance, you know, Google redlining, um, you know, Google the word redlining and take a look at it. You know, it talks about how, in, you know, basically within our communities, home ownership wasn't even an option for a lot of us. Um, you know, banks were not lending to us. Um, if you think about um, back in, I guess, late 1900s, early 1900s, there was a time period where, um, you know, basically the government was giving land to those, you know, for farmers and we weren't allowed to participate in those. So a lot of these items and tools that created generational wealth for other races, we weren't allowed to participate in. So guess what? We're not paying the costs. You know, you think about colleges and education, you know, all of these things where our grandparents were not allowed to get an education. So guess what? If my grandparent wasn't allowed to get an education, where was this opportunity to create this wealth that, you know, other races grandparents had? So we're really getting to the point now where, okay, hey, as a community, we are, you know, we're educated, we're employed, we're doing things, but, you know, I'm starting on third base and where my counterpart, my neighbor, is already on third. So the concept of, oh, just pull yourself up by the bootstrap, that's not necessarily a fair statement because, you know, I don't have a boot to pull up on. Um, You know, if I think about myself, and again, I am beyond blessed. You know, I have no complaints of where I am in life. But, you know, again, if I, if I didn't have to, you know, take out student loans and, you know, if my, when I bought my first home, my parents didn't have the ability to say, Hey, Tim, here's a down payment, you know, here's $50,000 to go put in your first house. No. So guess what? I had to get a house that I had to pay private mortgage insurance and all these other things that drug that dragged down the type of home I could buy. So again, I couldn't necessarily, you know, get that home and sell it for this great cost and generate additional wealth. Mm-hmm. So again, that hurt me. So how do we fix it? You know, first off, you know, I think right now in the next decade, the largest transfer of wealth in the African American community is getting ready to happen. Um, you know, for the first time, you know, our parents were really the first generation that had the ability to truly, you know, accumulate wealth. You know, that they were the first generation who historically could go to college and produce. You know, with that happening, how do we prepare for that? So educating ourselves and understanding, okay, when we get this inheritance, you know, when mom passes and she leaves that $200,000, $300,000 insurance policy, what do you do with it? You know, do you, do you go out and go shopping and do things? No. You know, you might do a few things to, to better your life, but how do you set things up to make sure your kids and your nieces and your nephews and your grandchildren can basically benefit from the things that your parents did. So really start thinking, not just in our life, but you know, the decisions I make, I'm thinking about my children's lives. How does it impact Elizabeth? How does it impact Kimberly? Um, so that's a long way around. Like, so I'm very passionate about this wealth gap, so I could literally talk for days about it, but there's just so many things. You know, also in this recent you know, upswing, you talk about police brutality and racial inequality, you know, because people often saying, you know, okay, why, like, why are you saying Black Lives Matter? It's more than just, you know, police violence and police brutality. Yeah, it's more than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of times people don't realize, you know, well, hey, they, if they people acted different, you wouldn't, they wouldn't have these issues. But again, like to me, I'm saying, let's go to the root cause. You know, why do we have these, you know, communities where there's no hope and so much despair? You know, people sometimes act out and have these emotions because they don't know what else to do. Um, right. it, it, so, they're battling systemic issues. Exactly. And I think barriers, that, yeah. that's where I think people are finally starting to open their eyes and realize, hey, 
there are things that are going on that someone needs to address. Um, and it's sad, you know, even within my company, you know, I work for Merrill Lynch, you know, we have over 17,000 financial advisors. I think currently there's probably 130, you know, African-American people of like African-Americans out of 17,000, you know. Around the whole country, around the world. Yeah, yeah. Yes, like, and we're one of the largest, you know, wirehouses on the planet, you know, and we have, you know, we don't have 1% of our workforce. Um, Now, are they doing things to kind of put things in place? Yes, but the question is, you know, how do we fix it? Does it mean she's going out and doing a mass hiring? No, because again, basically what we're doing, we're just setting people for failure. Because again, you bring people in, but you don't have the tools in place to really help them. And on all the support, that, the support that they need to be successful. Exactly. You're yeah. just setting people for failure. So I think the conversation of what's happening right now, it's opening people's eyes. So again, you know, you talk about these corporations saying, okay, hey, we understand Black Lives Matter. We stand with you. Okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to diversify your board of directors, that you can have a voice um, that can have a better understanding of the community? You're going to put things in place, you know, when it comes to hiring practices and, you know, where you donate your money. You know, again, I'm passionate about HBCUs. Mm -hmm. And I was excited when I saw that Netflix announcement. But again, it shouldn't be news because guess what? You know, if you talk about some of the other universities, you know, if I talk to the development officer at the University of the Ohio State, and a development officer at West Virginia State, you know, they have two different jobs. You know, at the Ohio State, they're just catching balls. You know, they're getting money thrown to them left and right. You know, they're getting donations and contributions from corporate and private, where at West Virginia State, they're fighting tooth and nail just to try to make the budget work. Yeah. So we need corporations, you know, if you kind of go back to, you know, the post-Civil War era, you know, where you had kind of like the, the American Titans, where a lot of these HBCUs were founded, you know, it was through corporate donors. We need to go back to those days where corporations are basically putting their money, money where their mouth is. If you're saying Black Lives Matter, support Black education. You know, partner with you. And it's not just about writing a check. You know, you should partner with your universities, you know, teach a class, you know, provide internships. Go internships are, such, are so important. Exactly. So important. And I think a lot of companies have cut back on internships that's just just getting a foot in the door and getting a feel for what working in a particular um field would be like is 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 so powerful but i think those programs have been cut back so something that we're going to deal with on a summit that i'm planning but um thank you so much tim this has really been the time flew by uh, thank you for your time. I know oh, it's it's, uh, it's a busy time for you with everything that's going on in the market and in in the world, really. So thank you for making time and sharing your knowledge, and um, all the best in your career. And thank you anytime, and all the best to you and all the work you do in the communities. And you know, you're a shining example of what needs to be done to make true changes and make impacts in communities. So you keep up good work, also. Thank you to Wealth Advisor Timothy Gibson. It was wonderful having you on Fostering Solutions, where you shared fundamentals of wealth management with us. This is Dr. Michelle Foster. Thank you for listening. And until next time, be blessed.